Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's uh, once again the best of Access Utah on our pledge drive. And uh, we have some exciting uh, content for you today. Segments from some of our best programs with folks on books. And our guest for the hour, special guest, is Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books in uh, Salt Lake City. And what we have coming up, we have some poetry. Uh, we had a program in April on uh, National Poetry Month with celebrated poet Edward Hirsch and with USU poet and English professor Michael Souter. And we asked the question, why poetry? We'll hear some poetry there. We also uh, have an excerpt from a program from June of this year on um, an exhibit, a museum exhibit, Glen Canyon, a River Guide Remembers. The River Guide we're talking about is Ken Slight. We'll talk about Ken Slight and uh, other uh, river issues. And uh, then we'll also have uh, a conversation from 2014 with uh, Anthony Durr on his wonderful novel, All the Light We Cannot See. All that to come uh, with uh, us. And uh, we welcome in uh, Ken Sanders. Thanks for taking the time again to join us. You're welcome, Tom. Uh, Thanks we, for having me. We, we appreciate you uh, helping us with the with the fun drive as we focus on books, and of course, that's a big part of your life. Uh, I want to mention here that every dollar you pledge during Access Utah will count for two; would be doubled up to five hundred dollars. Thanks to our uh, generous listeners, Chuck and Lou Gay, they're putting up that listener challenge to help you to support Access Utah on uh, Utah Public Radio. Uh, so, Ken Sanders, um, I, I think you usually bring us some poems uh, on these occasions. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, we absolutely can, can do that. Uh, you got a lot of themes going. I, I do. Books and wilderness, yeah. and uh, I'm happy to address any and uh, all of them, Tom. Uh, okay, great. I think I, we, uh, we could start with a couple of, you know, it's the 50th anniversary of the publication of Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey this year. Okay. It was the quiet little book that came out in right. 1968. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, it did not sell out its first printing of 5,000 copies. It was remaindered. Yet, 50 years later, it sold a couple of million copies. I just I have the current paperback in my hand, and it uh, states that it's the 58th printing. Wow. It, 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 <laughs> 58 it, it, printings yeah. in 50 years, and it sold, <laughs> I don't know for sure, but I'd, I'd say a million to two million copies now. After it's his a, most beloved work for 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 good reason. It's a hmm. interesting book. It's a fascinating book, and uh, after a couple of a uh, couple of quotes from from Ed that uh, really stand on their own, and I, I I'm not quite certain where they're from, but they're from Ed, Edward Abbey. The wilderness needs no defense, only more defenders. Hmm. Growth, growth for the sake of growth, is the ideology of the cancer cell. It, interesting. Ed, yeah. Yeah. Ed's, uh, I think there's the, 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 just the last part of the introduction I'd like to read to you because it uh, really still resonates. Uh, the last paragraph. Finally, a word of caution. Do not jump into your automobile next June and rush out to the canyon country, hoping to see some of that which I have attempted to evoke in these pages. In the first place, you can't see anything from a car. You've got to get out of the gall-darned contraption and walk. Better yet, crawl on hands and knees over the sandstone and through the thornbush and cactus. When traces of blood begin to mark your trail, you'll see something. Maybe. Probably not. The second place, most of what I write about in this book, is already gone or going under fast. This is not a travel guide, but an elegy, a memorial. You're holding a tombstone in your hands, a bloody rock. Don't drop it on your foot. Throw it at something big and glassy. What do you got to lose? Hmm. From Desert Solitaire, yeah. It still resonates. Yeah, yeah, it sure does, sure does. That uh, matches the theme we're, we're going to hear in this first segment, uh, program on Glen Canyon, and uh, kind of elegiac, yeah. right? remembering Glen Canyon the way it was before it was inundated, um, and focusing on Ken Ed Slight. Abbey, Ed Abbey went down it. He went down it, okay. 
with his butt down, and he went down with his old friend uh, Ken Slide. Yeah, yeah. Now you you knew Edward Abbey, I think. Uh, Ed was a friend of mine. Yeah, we yeah. did some river trips together and environmental adventures, mm-hmm. shall we call them together? You did some river trips with with Edward Abbey. Yeah, we mm-hmm. we we did these late November river trips down uh, the Green and Colorado rivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in those days, nobody we did them in November, and back then nobody. It was kind of nice having the national park to yourself. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, did you know hiking? Uh, do, hiking do, up and hiking with, as well. Stop. Mm-hmm. Pardon me. Do, do you know Ken Slight? I've known Ken for oh gosh, it seems like forever. Ken in the late nineteen seventies, Ken Slight taught me how to roll a boat for better or for for worse. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it was on a Desolation Canyon yeah. trip. Oh, wonderful. He is. He and the recently departed Katie Lee are, and there's others that, that, mm-hmm. that really, I think the National Park Service should create a new, you know, we have national parks, monuments, recreation areas, there's there's historic sites, you know, there's a lot of different uh, designations within the, the hundreds of uh, units in the park service but i'd suggest we need a new one we need a national historic person designation and i would want to nominate ken slight and the recently departed katie lee to be the first two national historic people Hmm. uh and i'm I'm sure a lot of our listeners would second that i wonder uh we're going to hear this segment Uh, before we do uh ken um uh, I, I know you have an opinion on this that uh, the people should support their their public radio uh, station. Uh, uh, why should they do that? Um, kind of like how I think about Ken Slight and Katie Lee and so many others that are truly national treasures. Um, the public radio stations that we have in our communities, and, you know, I'm talking to you from Salt Lake up to beautiful Cache Valley, um, especially in an isolated, smaller town. It's such a, I mean, geography, the, everything up there is so beautiful. And we we desperately need information on our, our lives and our communities and and our country and public radio provides that information it's it's sorely needed and it's really expensive to do i can't i'm shocked by you know any any of the national shows that you guys have to buy holy moly this stuff doesn't come cheap and and it's the beauty of it tom is you are there you're alive you're well yeah a couple of times a year you have to do this obnoxious fundraising stuff but folks just step it up call in those pledges it's it's a give and take it's the yin and yang you make it work you enable tom and his fabulous crew and all the behind the scenes people from the engineers to to the receptionist that that make it happen and give us the information that we can't get anywhere else and it's up to us it's a collaboration do is this where do you want to put your money you know i don't have a lot of money and then when i do i mostly spend it on books for crying out loud but um we have our priorities in life and i think an open community and open dialogue and being able to have a discourse which is something really sorely needed in this country today it happens because of local people things like utah public radio and the cash valley and wherever your your airwaves extend to now and it's really important so you gotta give you gotta uh, i'm 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 as i always do i'm gonna donate a hundred bucks right now and i would really encourage any listeners to call in it doesn't have to be a hundred bucks it could be ten bucks it could be a thousand bucks give give what you give to what you care about and give it to them now because the more we can give in the future you could shut the fundraising part of this down and give us more programming 
Well, thank you, Ken. Very eloquently said. Appreciate that. And appreciate your your membership, your donation. Uh, here's how to do it. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Uh, call now. Join your support with Ken Sanders. Uh, 800-826-1495. Or you can go online to upr.org. And uh, have your money doubled. Uh, Ken will have his money doubled here, and you can as well, courtesy of Chuck and Lou Gay. They're uh, sponsoring uh, the listener challenge up to $500 during Access Utah. They feel uh, this service is important enough, this uh, the specific program, Access Utah, that they're they're going to donate uh, up to $500 in a match. So your money is doubled uh, right now. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Uh, well, Ken, we're going to hear this segment. This is a uh, program uh, that we did uh, uh, on an opening of a museum exhibit in Green River. Yeah, down Green River. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Glen Canyon, a there. river guide remembers. You were there. Okay, great. And it continues, so you can go down to that John Wesley Powell River History Museum in Green River. Um, that's uh, running through March of uh, 2019. And uh, so the the kind of the, the central organizing figure of this exhibit is Ken Slight. And uh, so we talked with uh, several people. Um, including Davia Nelson from the Kitchen Sisters. So we talked with Mar- our friend Martha Ham, who's instrumental in this. Mm-hmm. We also talked with yep. uh, river historian um, and writer Frederick Swanson on this program. And we heard some audio. This is a wonderful part of the program. So we're going to hear, this is a, oh, about seven minutes or so from this program. And the central theme here in this part of the program is what what is it about the river that uh, that draws people in? And we're going to hear the voices of Ken Slight and uh, Katie Lee in, in this. Uh, so uh, after this, we'll uh, we'll come back with uh, Ken Sanders. Let's hear this. Let's uh, before we uh, turn to our other panels here. Um, I want to hear a couple more clips. Uh, first of all, um, let's hear uh, Ken Slight discovering the canyon. His description of of that, and then we'll uh, move to a, a clip from Katie Lee. She talks about smell the river, very evocative. Let's hear these two back to back. When I first saw it, it wasn't from the river. It was uh, coming down by horseback, and we decided to to stop at the mouth and camp there. Then we hike up to up the canyon, Clear Creek. When I first, I say, discovered it, discovered it for myself. It was the most amazing thing because it was covered bunch of willows around it. I think they were willows. And then push those apart and you walk in, there's just a big basin there. And of course, here's the great big cavern. There on the the sand bottom was moss, grass-covered type of thing. It was green. A lot of that was green when I first saw. Then there was that stream of water coming down little waterfall from up above and I didn't see at that time anybody any mark of civilization most beautiful thing I think that one of the big beautiful things I ever saw it is June of 1954 a year after my Grand Canyon powerboat run three trips this year one on the San Juan and two in Glen Canyon my way paid with river stories and Arizona highways magazine and singing beside a driftwood fire at day's end. What knocks me out about these rivers is their smell. The only way I can describe it is to call it more dry than wet, more dusty than dewy, pungent, earthy, not fishy. A clean dirt smell, most effective on an upstream wind when the rivers are nice and silty. I call it the Great Mother's Cologne. It keeps me wrapped in its aura, a kind of synesthesia. My ears feel it, and I certainly taste it. Even back in Hollywood sometimes, I will smell it in my dreams and wake up smiling. So that you just heard from Katie Lee, Smells of the River. 
Previously, uh, Ken Slight discovering the canyon. Now, that is from uh, Taylor Green's uh, piece. He's a National Geographic producer. Taylor Graham. Taylor Graham. Yes. Taylor Graham. And this is, uh, tell me the piece, Martha. Yeah. Th- uh, Taylor is part of a team, the National Geographic Explorers, and they have been uh, studying Glen Canyon, uh, Lake Powell. They came to Pat Creek Ranch and just made a beautiful little eight-minute film that uh, premiered at the Telluride Mountain Film Festival. And this is an audio clip from the film they just completed. Mm, wonderful. Uh, thanks for bringing these clips in. Um, so I want to turn back to Davy Nelson. Uh, you said a phrase that the river changed, Ken, something to that effect. Um, you're, you've been a lot on the river. Martha has as well. I'm not sure. Uh, Frederick Swanson, do you run the river or just t- talk to river runners? I get down to Green with my family when I can. Yeah. Obviously, that's upstream from Glen Canyon. Right, the right. Reservoir. Yeah, I've been down to Green as, as well. Beautiful, beautiful place. So, Davy Nelson, what, what is it about the river? Changes people. Brings I people back. Never, yeah, I'd never heard that uh, Kitty Lee quote. What is it? Mother Earth's cologne? Yeah, I think what so. She, oh, my God. I mean, that's part of it, isn't it? You know, there's something... The remoteness, the power of the water, the power and also the um, gentleness of the river, that constant current, the flow. I mean, it's embarrassing almost to kind of use those kind of words, They've, but it is the truth of it. And all that life that is within the river and on the banks of the river and then the trees and canyons, and there's, there's I think people seek church in so many ways. Um, And I know Utah in particular has such a connection to a church. And I think um, there, I mean, there's no accident that so many of the names of river rapids and uh, different formations within canyons are given names like Cathedral Rock. And I mean, they do inspire, I think, in people that sense of awe and wonder and the creator. And um, there is a deep, magic and a kind of a, dare I say, oneness, um, and just thrill. Also, let's just talk about the just sheer thrill of being on a running river. Hmm. Martha Ham, what, what brings you back? You've run a lot of rivers, done a lot of yeah. river running. What's, what, what is it about it? What draws you in? Literally the river. Um, there's a phrase, don't push the river. You can't push the river. And being in the flow and as you're floating into a rapid, sometimes you have to wait, and it's a little unnerving to be in the right position to wait Um, and then push ahead into something that uh, is frightening, um, exciting, and then 20 seconds later, (laughs) it's over, and you feel this elation of doing something that you didn't think that you could do. And I think that's part of Ken's reference when he says that the Kent, the river changed me. Um, but it, it it's hard work, but it's also patience. I think that's, for me, what has come from my time with the river. And I hear many people say that. Hmm. Uh, let me turn to Frederick Swanson. Uh, the people you've talked to, Ken Slight, Dave Rust. Um, wh- what is it? What is it that changes people about the river? Well, I, I think uh, Martha and, and Davia expressed it very well. Uh, there's a timelessness to being on the water. and I tend to think of the evenings by the river when the light's fading on the cliffs and the willows are bending in the current and there's that swish of the stream. It, it puts you in a different frame of mind. Uh, I don't know, it's just a, a wonderful way to connect with the earth. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we heard an excerpt from an Access Utah program uh, from June of uh, this year uh, on the opening of uh, an exhibit at uh, John Wesley Powell River History Museum in, in uh, Green River. It's called Glen Canyon, A River Guide Remembers. And we have with us for the hour, Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books in uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, Ken, uh, wonder if that uh, brings up some memories of your river running 
times. Oh man, yeah, they're, they're, your your voices are just right on. These are people that have been down the river. They they know, like Ken Slate knows, because he's been doing it his whole life. I've only been doing it half my life, but it's important. I think T.S. Eliot put it most succinctly: the river is a strong brown god, mm. and all of your voices. They alluded to this, what I call this transformation, this metamorphosis that takes place. It's really about the third day on on your your wilderness river trip journey that it sinks in that this is where you are, this is who you are, this is your business in the morning to get up and roll your sleeping kit up and put it away and drink some coffee or other beverage and get ready your your day's work your journey is to is to float down that river and yeah the rapids are part of it and they are exhilarating and if you're not scared of them maybe you shouldn't be down there <laughs> and it's just this transformation takes place on the third day with almost 99% of people that go down the river, this is your work, this is your day, and everything else fades away. And it's a blessing that all these damned electronic devices don't work down there, nor they shouldn't. Mm. And music, the sound of the river, and it's okay to, to, I mean, there's nothing better to go down the river with musicians but the secret is you have to make your own mu- music. You can't have, uh, and this is going to date me, a transistor radio <laughs> or whatever the young people uh, plug into their ears these days. Music is great, but, but the river does the landscape, the birds, the, the, the great blue herons in the morning, the desert bighorns coming down and, and occasionally swimming across the river, the life, the, the, the canyon runs, the songs. Uh, the musician, Kate McLeod, who I had the privilege of doing a Cataract Canyon River trip with last year, and she wrote songs every single day on the river and then performed them at night. And one day, we are, are, we're floating by um, a, a, a heron rookery. And there's all these babies that haven't fledged yet, and they're they're peeping and chirping, and they can't leave their nests. And the moms and dads, we're we're a respectful distance away, and we're just floating quietly past them. And the moms and the dads are flying in and out, and Kate is just transformed. She's just listening to that baby parent sound, and then she starts emulating it. And you can't tell her baby heron sound from the bird sound. And in her mind, she's composing the note on her violin that that sound is going to become and the song she's going to write about it. It gives you access to creativity and it's just this magical, like I say, a metamorphosis that takes place. And then this is the real world and everything we left behind doesn't seem so unimportant anymore. Mm. And it's important to have that experience. You can't hurry it. You don't take a one-day river trip for crying out loud. Make mm. it a week at least, please. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful imagery. Uh, thank you for that, Ken. Um, uh, let's take a break. Before we uh, do take a break, let me remind you that uh, the central purpose of this show, we're, we're putting our best foot forward, uh, segments from our best episodes, to remind you that you love the show, hope that you do, and uh, that it's worth supporting. So if you have not done that yet, by the way, if you have, uh, thank you so much. If you have not, uh, we hope that you will right now, 800-826-1495. And Ken Sanders joins us for the hour from Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City. He's kicked in $100. Thank you, Ken. Join your uh, support with Ken's at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. A reminder that your pledges doubled during Access Utah to $500, uh, courtesy of Chuck and Lou Gay. They support the program, uh, won't you as well? Join your support with theirs and with Ken's, 800-826-1495. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk poetry 
Uh, during National Poetry Month, April, I had the great pleasure of talking to two poets, Edward Hirsch, a celebrated poet, uh, author of nine books of poetry, and uh, USU uh, English professor Michael Souter. And we got talking about what, why poetry and the power of poetry. Later in the program, a bit from our conversation with Anthony Durer from his wonderful, about his wonderful novel, All the Light We Cannot See. More following this break. Did you know that students perform better when their education is connected to their culture? Researchers have found that material is learned more easily and retained longer when it relates to aspects of a student's cultural heritage. In southern Utah, these findings are being implemented with Native American youth to help students learn engineering, math, and science principles. The projects that have been developed combine hands-on learning experiences with intergenerational learning, giving students an opportunity to work with their parents and grandparents. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Block Film and Art Festival, a celebration of independent artistic expression in downtown Logan. Film, art, music, and education. Friday, September 28th and Saturday, September 29th. More information at theblockfestival.org. It's the best of Access Utah during the Pledge Drive. Uh, I'm Tom Williams and... Uh, We've heard uh, about Glen Canyon and Ken Slight. We'll uh, shortly be going to uh, poets Edward Hirsch and Michael Souter. Later on, a conversation with Anthony Durr, uh, author of All the Light We Cannot See. We have with us for the hour Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books in uh, Salt Lake City. And you've probably seen him on an Antiques Roadshow as well. Uh, can you still do Antiques Roadshow? Uh, yeah, they let the antiques like me do that, Tom. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's yeah, I do fun. book and manuscript appraisals. I've done it for the past dozen years. Who knows how it started or or why? It's it's a very interesting experience. It, it can be very very challenging. You're you're spending you know ten twelve hours uh, of a day just having hundreds of incoming things. Hit hit you that maybe if you're lucky you know something about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's always a kick to to see you on there, uh, and we say, hey, hey uh, I, I know that guy. I don't own her. Yeah. I should mention I do not own or watch television. Yeah. Oh, oh you don't thing, really, Tom. The last thing I would ever watch is me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> you. You don't you don't watch television. I don't. I haven't owned one for over. A decade now. Yeah, I, I would imagine you read. I'm guessing. <laughs> so you do what you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you got that right. Okay, great. Almost every night. Yeah. Uh, uh. Before we leave the river and Ed Abbey and Katie Lee and Ken Slight and all these people, I feel so privileged to have known those people for most of my life. I mean, Katie just passed at 98 for crying out loud. Ken is still with us and. Uh, Ed Abbey sadly died 29 years ago no. at age 62. Yeah. But what I want to say about one more thing, that this 50th anniversary of Desert Solitaire, um, back of Beyond Books down in Moab, and I believe they have a little radio station down there too, mm-hmm. um, they're publishing the manuscript edition of Desert Solitaire with Ed's own you know, corrections and notations on it for this big anniversary, and also doing a whole series of celebrations, including, with my help, we're printing four broadsides about Abbey and Desert Solitaire by Wendell Berry, Terry Tempest Williams, Doug Peacock, and Amy Irvine. And Amy Irvine is a wonderful author who wrote a book a decade ago called Trespass, Living on the Edge of the Promised Land. She's got a big new work coming out, but in the interim, she has basically written a book called Desert Cabal, which is being published next month by Tory House Press, and down in Tory, of course. Um, it is, I don't know how to say it, it's going to be controversial. It's a book 
kind of taken taking Ed Abbey to task for certain aspects of his personality and behavior, shall we say. Mm. But she does it with love and respect, and I think the book is quite beautiful. I, Desert Cabal, uh, uh, kind of a, uh, an offshoot of Desert Solitaire. Uh, I wrote a blurb for the back cover of it. Uh, I hope they use it. I said, if Edward Abbey didn't have a woman in his trailer at Arches back in the 1950s. There is one now, and she has a room and a voice of her own. That would be Amy Irvine, Desert Cabal. Oh, thank you for those. Uh, I'm, I'm taking notes uh, on the possible Access Utah programs as well here. Um, so uh, what uh, just mentioned that uh, Ken Slide appears in the Monkey Wrench Gang, right? Uh, he is the inspiration for the character of yeah. Seldom Seen Smith. Yeah. You have to understand that uh, all of the characters are inspired by real-life people. It, it's not to say that Ken Slight is Seldom Seen Smith. And goodness knows, Ken has been married more than once. He's found his life partner these past 20-odd years or 30 years with, with Jane Slight, of course. But he was never unlike Seldom Seen, who had a woman in every port because he was polygamist, um, Ken has had to deal with that in his own life. Mm. And I'm here to tell you that Ken's had multiple wives, but never at the same time. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's the book. Mm. And, and like Doug Peacock is the, you know, the basis of the character of Hey Duke. And anybody that spent time around Dougie, you could... You, uh, Oh, yeah. He's a Duke, all right. He is. Okay. Uh, I've had the great pleasure of uh, interviewing Doug a couple of times. He's an interesting oh, he, person. He's, yeah. he's like a tornado. If you yeah. got him indoors, he's like a tornado touches down inside your house, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you might not want to keep him overnight. <laughs> <laughs> but but for a few hours, he's very interesting uh, to be with. Um, uh, he's a powerful force of nature. Yeah. I want to uh, make a transition to, to poetry here, and uh, you you've uh, you read poetry and have brought us some poetry here on this program. Um, so I want to. You know what? I've even, uh, Tom, I've yeah. even written two poems. Although I absolutely promise I not subject you or your <laughs> audience to those. Oh, I didn't know that. But you've you've written some poems. I do. No, I won't do it. Okay. Um, I couldn't even remember them anyway. I don't have any memory. Um, as we know, and we've talked about in the past, the beloved professor at uh, USU, another one other than Michael, is Kenneth W. Brewer. There have yes. been so many great literary and poetic people come out of Utah State. You know, along with, with UPR, USU, they're, they're like twin treasures up there in the Cache Valley. I mean, what would we do without your radio station? What would we do without your university? They're very, very important. Ken Brewer um, died of uh, pancreatic cancer over uh, a decade ago now, and he was involving all of us in his journey into death by writing poems almost daily, and when he was still healthy enough, emailing them to us. And it became clear to me, and I wrote to Ken when he could still correspond back, Ken, we have to publish these poems. And he admitted, yes, of course. So he and I conspired to publish this book of his final poems called Whale Song, A Poet's Journey into Cancer. And I know it seems morbid, but it is anyone that has you know, a life transformation, particularly with disease or cancer, yeah, you should give them a copy of this book because it is inspirational. I want to read a single paragraph of the last of his own introduction to the book that Ken Brewer wrote, knowing that he would not live to see it in print. And here is the definitive statement about poetry. I keep hearing that poetry is dead in this country, but I refuse to believe that. When we must confront immediate crises, we seldom write novels or short stories. We write poems, or we sing, or we pray. Upon being told my life was about to end, I wrote the first poem as if it were a boat of words launched towards places 
beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, what what a what a wonderful privilege to have had him here at USU. Um, so um, let's and let's talk about let's hear this a segment from from this uh, from this uh, program, Access Utah. Um, from April, and then I want to talk about uh, May Swenson. Uh, just yesterday, they uh, broke ground on the May Swenson House at uh, USU. Which Wonder, a wonder yes. wonderful uh, institution here at the the, the base of uh, Old Main Hill. Uh, so this is a program, uh, and we won't hear all of this segment. Uh, we'll have to fade out during during the part of it. But uh, you can catch the whole program. We'll have a link to it, and uh, we'll probably repeat this at some point on Access Utah. But I had the great privilege of talking in April, National Poetry Month, with Edward Hirsch. He's the celebrated author of nine books of poetry, recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, Guggenheim Fellowship, and uh, he serves as chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. And uh, we also talked with uh, USU English professor Michael Souter, who's a uh, poet uh, as well. Uh, Fine poet in his own right. Yes, indeed. And he's also a professor of uh, religious studies, affiliated professor of religious studies at USU. Uh, So here's a portion of my conversation with Edward Hirsch and Michael Souter. So, Edward Hurst, place I'd like to start. You're an advocate uh, for poetry. This is uh, National Poetry Month. Um, so, uh, why poetry? Why why is poetry so important? Maybe I could frame this. Uh, you wrote a book, How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry. Yeah. Um, I thought people could use a little help. Uh, my, my experience was that there were a lot of people who felt that there was something in poetry for them, but they had lost connection to it. Somehow, in, along the way, in their education, they had dis- they had thought that they had discovered that they felt poetry was too hard for them, and they'd been turned away. And uh, I thought uh, I could find a way to welcome people back into the tent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can't just be news all the time. It it just can't be materialism all the time. And in American culture, there probably isn't a time when someone isn't trying to sell you something. Um, but I think we probably need some space where someone is not trying to sell us something where we want something else. And um, I think that poetry is this place to go to connect you both to other people and to your own inner life. And as long as we have an inner life, um, I think we're going to want pl- ways to get access to it. And my experience is that poetry is one of the one of the methods of transport. Mm. You mentioned that some people have uh, – there's a block that can't get into it. Uh, and uh, – and therefore, they give it up, or they they they, they don't pursue it. Uh, I'm thinking of a television commercial I saw once. Um, the, the, some people were looking at some screens, a couple of young men, and and the voiceover was, "Why are foreign films so foreign?" You know, that's, <laughs> and, and I think we we've, we've all kind of been there, you know, the subtitles or whatever it is, yeah. And and the different movie syntax kind of maybe you could apply that to poetry. It's uh, you know, but uh, I guess if you find a poet that you can respond to or there's a way in. I, I, you know, I think that people have been prematurely turned away from something that they really would have much more access to than they realize. And it will give them a way to connect with themselves. And I just, I, you know, I'm an American. I believe in democracy. I think poems are for all people. And, 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 and I just think if we throw open the doors to the tent, people will find that actually there's something in poetry for them that they weren't always aware was there. Mm. Well, I have a question to you, uh, Michael mm-hmm. Souter. What yes. uh, do, do you find... Uh, obviously, some people find a barrier there. Other people respond by their way in more easily. Um, how to bring down those barriers, how, how to make poetry more accessible. Well, um, I was a lawyer for 10 years before I came back to poetry. And um, one of the things that I discovered in coming back to poetry and reading more contemporary poetry is that there's just a lot of contemporary poetry that's really accessible, that's not so difficult. You know, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, Poetry out of the canon, John Donne, John Milton, I mean, wonderful poets who I love, but they really take a lot of work to unpack what's happening in the poem. Um, but there are a lot of contemporary poets that uh, <clears throat> that uh, you can read the poem and you know what's going on. And I think poetry is just uh, so wonderful at capturing moments of human experience. I mean, some poems are narrative, and I remember when Mark Doty came here, he said he always needs... Uh, to start with a narrative, to get with these kind of luminous lyrical moments, which I feel like are kind of the heart of poetry. And so poem, a poem is really great for capturing 
uh, these important moments of human experience. Mm. And yeah. I, I just have to follow up. I didn't know that about you. Uh-huh, yeah. You, I was a lawyer for, I wasted 10 years as a lawyer. <laughs> so before I came law back. to poetry, that's a journey. Yeah. Well, first I fell in love with poetry in college and, but I got married young and thought I should do something practical. So mm. I went to law school and you know, I did well, and I clerked for a federal judge, and one thing led to another, and then I realized the error of my ways Okay, came back. It became a poet, yeah. yeah. Uh, perhaps less lucrative, but... Uh, Definitely. Poor, but happier. <laughs> yeah, poor, but happier, yeah. So, uh, Edward Hirsch, uh, I'd like to know a little bit of your biography. How, how early did you get into to poetry? Was, was it a direct path? I'm going to be a poet? Not really, although I, I started... I started writing poetry when I was in high school, but the way almost everyone does, I had feelings I didn't understand. Um, and I mean, it's very generous to call what I was writing poetry. I was just <laughs> writing things down, but I felt better when I did it and girls liked it. Um, uh, but when I went to college, I went to Grinnell College in Iowa, I started reading poetry. And when I started reading poetry I I just connected to it and I thought there's something here for me really but I, I I don't think it was an intellectual decision for me it was I was sort of drowning I had feelings I didn't understand and I saw an oar going by and I grabbed on mm. and it turns out it was kind of emotional desperation and I thought poetry. well you can hear that whole conversation at upr.org uh, and uh, Ed Hirsch and Microsoft to read some of their poets uh, poems it's uh, it's wonderful uh, so, uh, Ken Sanders, um, uh, something that Edward Hirsch uh, said struck me. He says, as long as we have an internal life, uh, we're going to have a need for poetry. You could probably expand that to books, right? Mm. Yeah, it, it's, it's important. You know, it, in, uh, both Michael and, and, and Edward touched uh, on, on this need for poetry and, and referenced you know, people that don't think they like poetry. It's because they've never been exposed to good poetry. And yeah, maybe some of the old classical people, Milton, etc. Yeah, they're maybe less accessible to, to the modern mind without a lot of work. But I don't think that that means that contemporary poets are, are less important, or their works are important. But, but you know, through hundreds of years, thousands of years of poetry going back to Sappho, for crying out loud. Um, poetry has changed. It's organic. It should change. And like like Ken Brewer said, it's important, particularly in times of crisis. I would say to people that don't like, think they don't like poetry, read your Wendell Berry. Read, read Mace Winston. Read Ken Brewer. Read some of our local poets. Read Mace Winston. Mace Winston is one of the most widely anthologized American poets, and she deserves it. She's got her own volume now in the Library of America series. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good company, I'd say. Jim Harrison, although he's known, known for his novels or novellas, is one of the finest poets that we had. I believe that Wendell Berry's writings in more than 60 books now, whether they're poems, essays, novels, or what have you, I believe that Wendell Berry is the most important living American writer today. You need to read your Wendell Berry. He's got things to say to you. I'm, I'm writing that down. I'm going to return to Wendell Berry. Thank you for that, uh, Ken. If, if, if you, yeah. you have to tell me what time, because I don't mean to take up yeah. all of our time, but if we have time to read a poem, I'll certainly read one. Let's, I do let's do that, get yes. One, one plug-in, since we're mm -hmm. talking about poets. We have a national traveling poet tomorrow night in the store, a fiddling poet named Ken Waldman. I'm not very familiar with him, but I'm. Uh, mm. it, he's being hosted through the Utah Humanities Council that does such great work for in all of our communities statewide, including beautiful Cache Valley. And uh, with him, uh, our own Kate McLeod, uh, singer, songwriter, and master fiddler. She is coming with him to perform, and she is going. Kate has, as a songwriter, it shouldn't be a surprise, but she is an astonishingly good poet, and she has never shared her poems. This will be the tomorrow evening at the bookstore. She will be debuting her poetry along with her fiddle playing. So we're really looking forward to that.
That is uh, tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, Ken Sanders' uh, Rare Books in Salt Lake City. Yeah, that, that sounds like a great event. And that's part of the, the book festival Utah Humanities has yes. going on? Yeah. Yep. I noticed you have... They, they do... They do a great job. They do really do. I know uh, in October you have Alex Caldiero, an event with uh, Alex oh, Caldiero. Yeah. Oh my God, Al- Alex is. If you ever get a chance, he's he would he doesn't call himself a poet. Alex Caldi- Caldiero, he's Sicilian-born, Brooklyn-raised, Orem, Utah's only sonosopher. Mm, sonosopher, yes. Alex, what, what, now, what is Alex, what is that? It's about the the sound of words. Okay. That's what he obsesses with. And he is going to do a very strange performance, and trust me, Alex performs, mm-hmm. um, about, I don't know, I don't even know how to say it, the synchronicity of books. That uh, One quick story, uh, I, I was down in Orem, of all places, where Alex lives, on a, an estate of an old, long-gone bookseller down there, and I hauled off a giant truckload of books. I had my my truck so stuffed full that the books were falling over on me in the gear shift every time I'd turn a corner. And Alex happened to come up, and the books, I'd started carrying them in, but the, the, the car was still, the truck still full of books. And Alex, as he's leaving, he says to me, I want you to save, save that, 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 that biography for me. I said, what? What are you talking about? That biography is in that collection. You save it for me. Alex you got to give me something more to go on. <laughs> well, he didn't. And all of a sudden I said, wait a minute. You don't mean biography. You mean autobiography, don't you? You mean Frank Lloyd Wright's autobiography, don't you? Yes, <laughs> the one with the white cover. <laughs> I go home that night. I get in my car, the truck, the next morning to drive to work. And the pile of books in the passenger seat on the top of the pile is the white dust-jacketed Frank Lloyd Wright's autobiography. I swear that book wasn't there the night before when I drove home. Alex somehow intuited the book was in the collection, and I had it, and he wanted me to save it for him. (laughs) So that's kind of what he's going to be talking about, lost and found books and the the search for books. And it's a treat to whatever he's doing. You get a cat, get a chance to, to... catch an Alex Caldiero um, um, performance, you want to do it. And he's written, oh gosh, half a dozen volumes of books by now mm. as well. Let's um, let's uh, go, I want to get this in, uh, we've uh, promoted this, yeah. I want to get this excerpt, a uh, portion of this excerpt from Anthony Durer. Um, uh, oh, just yes. before we, before we go to that, uh, just a reminder that we are raising money for Access Utah and we're looking for your pledge right now, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. A reminder, Ken Sanders already kicked in $100. Thank you, Ken. And his dollars have been doubled. Yours can as well, up to $500 because Chuck and Lou Gay have uh, issued a listener challenge. So get your money doubled. Support Access Utah with your pledge right now. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Let's go uh, to this. This is a conversation from 2014. I had the great pleasure of Anthony Durr uh, coming into studio. He was on the campus, USU campus, for an event. Uh, and he's he's somewhat local. We'll claim him. He, he uh, lives in Boise, I believe. Really? Um, All the light you cannot see is one of the most beautiful new novels that I have ever read. Hmm. His eloquence with words and, and the plot. If you try and explain the book, ah, but it's a book about World War II, <laughs> nobody's going to read it, Tom. Right, right, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's got World War II in it, but that's not what the book's about. You just have to read it. It's, it's beautiful. about people's lives. It, it mm-hmm. is it's one of the most beautiful novels I have ever read. Let's hear just a, a few minutes from my conversation with Anthony Durr. So referring to the book's title, they're, they're sort of the obvious metaphors, and then you talk about one that's uh, maybe not as uh, obvious. There are countless invisible stories still buried within World War II, stories of ordinary children, for example. That's, that's one thing. Is this something that... I guess you knew beforehand or while you're doing research, all these stories that, uh, and some of them need to be told. I guess all of them, ideally, but at least to chip away at it. Yeah, um, certainly not something I knew beforehand. I knew very little. In fact, I thought Brittany was in Britain until I got going on, you know, reading about the war. Uh, 
I think, you know, World War II is at this really interesting time where um, the people for whom it is memory are reducing in number every day. Um, You know, we are losing not only American veterans, but in Europe, you know, people who remember the war are, you know, often in their 90s and we're losing them very quickly. And we're in danger. I don't know if danger is the right word, but we have to be careful in how we remember all these stories. Um, I think about how my sons who are 10 have started to learn about the war and it's often in kind of frightening to me ways like through video games or through the History Channel which can be very responsible but will also occasionally do these um, really black and white, almost animated narratives of the war where, you know, German soldiers are dying on all sides and, you know, triumphant American tanks are rolling into Berlin. And, uh, you know, I think the truth is always a little bit more complicated than that. So my goal here was to try to say, you know, can you empathize with this French girl, somebody we're pretty used to empathizing with, as deeply as maybe a, a German boy, a German citizen who um, makes some poor decisions, but also is really by socioeconomic reasons, um, by lack of education, really compromised in a lot of ways in terms of how he's able to think about what's right and what's wrong. Mm. So I guess it is good versus evil. That's kind of how we think of it. It's the stereotype. And in some ways, that's true, right? You know, the Nazis perpetrated the Holocaust. There's no way you can defend any of that. But there are some some when you get down past the Nazis for the German citizens like Werner, there are some gradations there. Of course, yeah. Of course, it's good versus evil in many of the narratives, and um, and yeah, there's no no denying that. I just think as you get towards the lives of children, uh, you know, it's important to try to think, you know, what was it like to be uh, ten years old or twelve years old when this government's coming to power? And you know, I just kept asking myself, would I have had the strength to say, you know, at age sixteen, say no? Um, and I don't, I think, unfortunately, the, you know, I look at my dark, tortured soul. I don't know if the answer is yes. You know, I don't know if I would have risked my life or risked my family's well-being to say what we're doing is wrong. And, you know, that's terrible. That's a shameful thing. But I think uh, self-preservation. There's a, a portion of my conversation from 2014 with Anthony Durr, uh, All the Light We Cannot See. So, Ken Sanders, I have a pretty good gig here. I get to talk to really interesting people. Um, and Anthony yep. Durr is such a such a wonderful writer. If you haven't read All the Light We Cannot See, go and go and read it. Um, so as we close here, we just have about a minute uh, left, uh, Ken Sanders. Um, I'll uh, put another plug in for the event coming up tomorrow night. Ken Waldman and Kate McLeod. That sounds like a great event, 7 o'clock at Ken Sanders Rare Books. Uh, so, Ken, at the end here, uh, maybe an, an, another appeal to our listeners. Why why should they join you in supporting UPR? I, okay, I, I've got one. This may be unorthodox, and it may not even be kosher, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do our own little challenge inspired by by your couple's $500 grant. So I mentioned these uh, in conjunction with, so this is going to be a Ken Sanders Rare Books, Back of Beyond Books, Moab, Utah, joint sponsorship. We will give a autographed copy, first edition, of Amy Irvine's Desert Cabal to, for a $100 pledge. We will give a set of all four signed broadsides by Wendell Berry, Terry Tempest Williams, Doug Peacock, and Amy Irvine for a $250 pledge. And we will give, these are single copies only, not multiples, we'll give a, there's, there's 50 copies, being limited edition, being printed of the manuscript with Ed Abbey's handwritten corrections of the original manuscript of Desert Solitaire. It's one of 50 copies. There, That one is actually en route to me today. The others will be a couple of weeks out. That one will be for a $500. Donation. Wow. So wow, that's, that's amazing. So $100 for a Desert Cabal, 250 for four broadsides, or 500 bucks for Desert Solitaire Manuscript Edition. Wow. Thank you so much, Ken. We'll get details out on those, and that's very generous. Thank you. We're, uh, we're just about Sorry, out just of time. Right uh, on, yeah. uh, Ken Sanders, Ken Sanders Rare Books, thank you so much for helping out today. And uh, you're listening to Access Utah. Thanks. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, 
and also heard at upr.org.